The following message was given by Dr. Ian Jagelman during his 40 years of ministry as a church leader in Australia. It's our sincere desire that this timeless message will equip you as a leader and a servant in your family, business and community. More resources like this one can be found at jagelman.org. Enjoy the following message. Father, as we uh, open another of the letters of Paul and we, we see of the way of faith, the way of grace, uh, we see what you can and want to do in us. I pray, Lord, that we'll examine our own walk with you, our own attitudes, and Lord, that this will bring us into freedom and victory in our life. Our Father, I pray it will be truth which can also bring freedom to others. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, it's not always known that, uh, that Paul, in writing his letters, um, often uses one of the letters as a basis for another. In other words, that there is a literary relationship between one of his epistles and the other. A good example of it would be the relationship between Ephesians and Colossians. Uh, when you look at it, the, the content is fundamentally the same, the order is the same. Uh, he will change the phrasing a little bit from one to the other, but you can clearly see he'd written one and then in writing to another church, wants to address similar issues and has one, if not in front of him, in mind as he writes it. It's uh, also true to say that um, there is a relationship between the book of Galatians, which we're going to be studying, and the book of Romans. Uh, and the themes uh, are consistent. When you get later in the book of Romans, you'll find um, some additional issues which get raised. But in a, a general sense, uh, there are common issues. In my introduction, I, I mentioned, like 2 Corinthians, that, that when Paul writes, he writes his message, you know, and write, what he writes is, is coming out of his life. And it's, it's, he speaks of what God has said to him, what God has done in him, what God is doing through him. There is this sense of both his message and his ministry are an extension of his own spiritual journey. The Holy Spirit leads him to, to share of not just what is true or is truth, but what is true. And uh, true for him, you know, this is, and, and we particularly because in the first chapter of, of, of this letter and one into the second, it's one of the accounts where you get him sharing his testimony. Um, you find the same thing, 2 Corinthians is very similar to it. It's much of 2 Corinthians is Paul speaking about the nature of his life and experience and then addressing it to others as, as principles by which we should live. You know, Paul knew the powerlessness of, of a zeal which is based on ignorance. The Romans, you know, he, he'll, he'll talk about the Jews, I bear them, you know, I bear witness to them, they have a zeal in ignorance. And he, he knew, and we'll get this language in this chapter, of what it is to strive to please God in your own strength and, um, and the futility of trying to attain a righteousness through the law. And I, I've called this series The Overcoming Life because when I think of my early development as a Christian, and my desire to live a life which was pleasing to God, for my, my to live a life of holiness and fruitfulness, um, I'd kind of been presented with a gospel which said we're saved by grace, and then I'd been presented with a righteous life which was based on the law. And whether it was intentional or otherwise, I found myself you know, going to the Anglican church which I grew up in as a, as a young Christian and which I have respect for and I have tremendous gratitude for so much of what I learnt in that place. Uh, 
But I found myself going to the, say, the, eve, the morning communion service and every Sunday the, the Ten Commandments were part of the, the morning prayers and the, the liturgy, either in long form or the short form. But you know, so week after week after week after week, it's like I was being confronted by the commandments. And, and then when we came to communion service, there are these, if you follow the Anglican order of the communion service, whether it's a, the, the a prayer of confession or a prayer of what's called humble access to communion, there's this sense of your sinfulness <laughs> and, and a failure to keep the law. And I certainly consciously can say my early discipleship was I'm saved by grace, but the Christian life is keeping the law. And found myself trying to please God and become righteous through keeping the, his commandments. And Paul knows it doesn't work. He, you know, he knows from his experience what happens. You can, you can get to a place where you're outwardly righteous because you're outwardly observing the law, but... It doesn't begin to do with the inner life. And so Paul will teach not only do we, are we saved by faith or by grace through faith, but we live by grace through faith. And I think my experience is that many Christians haven't realised the second part that they haven't understood that the overcoming life is not one of all being saved by grace and then doing your very best to please God in a sense of human. That they haven't understood that to overcome they have to continue to live by faith or walk by faith. However, in the case of Galatia, which in a generalised simple sense if we can visualise Turkey... You're in good shape. Um, then no sooner had Paul come, preached the gospel and moved on that others came and began to teach another gospel. In fact, the very things that Paul taught are the things Paul himself had tried and rejected. Um, in, in, uh, and it's helpful for us, just a bit of a reminder, because for some of you this will be reasonably fresh. Uh, in previous studies, I've, I've reminded you that, that there was, um, amongst the Jews, two kinds of Jews. There were the Palestinian Jews. They wouldn't have been called Palestinian, because that's a post-Christian terminology. There were... There were, Jew there were Jews based in Israel and there were Jews of the diaspora, those who were scattered abroad. And there were certain things associated with those who lived in Israel which were quite distinctive in the nature of their Judaism. There was uh, a loyalty to the land, which Jews who lived outside didn't have. You know, they were quite happy to live wherever they were living. There was a loyalty to the temple. Um which those outside may once a life go to, but others felt that. And there was a, a view of the law, a very strict, rigid interpretation of the law. And, uh, and amongst those who were part of the early church were, were what are called Judaizers or those committed to saying, well, G we can accept Jesus as Messiah, but we must still rigidly adhere to the law. And so they come and we're going to see in this letter that Paul presenting to us a message to get us to really embrace life faith. Um, it would appear that from, from the very beginning there had been this kind of confusion or contention between faith versus law or law versus grace. And I'm absolutely convinced that if we can't kind of really understand the nature 
of grace and faith as, as the way we live, uh, we're likely to get up in this idea of, of uh, Lord, I want to do better. I want to please you. We want, I want to attain a righteousness through my own strength. So that's, uh, that's kind of just an introduction to it. There are, when you read more formal introductions to Galatians, it's the, uh, you get in some interesting discussions about the, everyone believes it's Paul. It's one of the books which people want to date. None of the books were dated. Manuscripts weren't dated. You know, obviously, you're not going to get AD 64. That concept is hundreds of years later. So the books aren't dated as we, we would understand it. But they, there is a question as well, when was this book written? And the pivotal discussion is, is it written before or after the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15? Because there are issues in that council which we may come to discuss. But I think it's, uh, we don't need to sort of get into the discussions and uh, of further dates. But it is, there is this interesting discussion. as The assumption is that this is probably written about AD 49, Council of Jerusalem's AD 50, and uh, you kind of get this discussion taking place, this letter taking place, and later the, co- the council resolving it all. But what we will encounter, we will encounter in this first chapter, and uh, the first is the nature of the relationship which existed between Paul and Jerusalem. You'll, you'll find, uh, find that going on. Now, I decided to call this first study Doing It God's Way. And I called it this as I was thinking about this material. Is because we, each one of us have a choice. Are we going to live the Christian life our way or God's way? There really, there really is a choice. You know, we can, we can embrace the Christian life and then say, right, well, I'll, I want to please God and then make assumptions about how we do that. And the trouble is we find if we do it, try and do it our way, we find it's actually we make it harder for ourselves rather than easier for ourselves. And we, we have a capacity, and I'm going to we'll divert from Galatians a little bit later tonight, because I want, to, want you to realise that when man conceives of the way to please God, it's not God's way. It's the way we would think of God would want us to do it. And what would have the appearance of wisdom? Or what would have the appearance of piety or the appearance of religiousness or appearance of, of that? We, ha- we have, man has this capacity to invent religion. And uh, so we need to start with the sense of doing it God's way. So if we start, we turn to Galatians 1. And um, the first point I want to make is that, that God will always take the initiative so we read, Paul, an apostle, sent not from man nor by man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And all the brothers with me, with me to the churches of Galatia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when Paul begins this, which is a defense of his message, and to defend his message, he has to defend his ministry. Because if he can validate his ministry, it validates his message. He wants us to begin to realize that his apostleship does not come from men, or nor is it through men, but it's through Jesus Christ. It's where it comes from. Where does it come from? It's not from man. And, and what man would it be from? In other words, from himself. He's saying that his ministry, this is not from me. This is not my idea and it's not my message. But nor is it through man. And if we, uh, this expression through man, if we turn quickly to 1 Corinthians 15... It 
It says, verse 21, it says that since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. It means through the action, in the sense of through an action of a man. So where does Paul's apostleship come from? It's not either of his, it's not his own idea, nor is it the action of somebody else. Godly ministry must have its origin in God. Apostleship, ministry, calling to ministry, must have its origin in God. Neither, neither you or me or those who have encouraged us can be the source of what God wants us to do. Yeah. It's God himself who will take the initiative. In Hebrews 5, we turn across to Hebrews 5. When talking about those appointed to the priesthood, verse 4, the author says, No one takes this honour upon himself. He must be called by God, just as Aaron was. Now, Paul is actually not particularly wanting to start with a lengthy kind of discussion about apostleship and about his ministry, except as to establish its origin. That the origin of his ministry, his calling from God, and it will follow that the origin of his message is from God. And he will, he will later on in this chapter make a statement that says, even if I were to preach to you another gospel, reject it. And so it's important for us to ask ourselves the question, where does my ideas about the Christian life, about my ministry, where does it come from? Does it come from man? Does it come from some author, some teacher, some tradition, some denominational heritage? Is it something I've conceived? Is what I think it the way it should be? Or does it come from God? Is it clearly based on what God has said in his word? Because I, I find that if once we accept that the initiative must come, come from God, this must be God's based, we can find unity. But uh, um, if we do not go to that source, in other words, we don't, if we don't go to God, if we don't go back to his word, we will not find unity. We'll find us defending what's part of our religious tradition Regulations one. And we, that's, that's where disputes come. That's where conflict comes. When we appeal, I remember years ago sitting down and someone was challenging something I was about to do as a, as a Christian in terms of being baptised and kind of sat in front of me and saying, but that's not what the prayer book says. Now the prayer book is not the scripture. You know, it's not the source. And uh, when, I, when I find Christians who are st really struggling uh, in areas, I, so the only place we can go for an authority on this issue is to go to what has God said. Uh, and so the issue, Paul's first, first thing he's wanting to do is establish us what is the source that we're going to depend upon. And the answer is it has to be God. Now, verse 2, he says, you know, the brother's with me and uh, i got various scriptures. There, this is kind of an aside, not central to us, but we, we get so familiar with the term brothers, I think when we're reading Paul's writings, that we kind of overlook the term. It actually is not a term of affection. It seems to be a technical term. Now, it seems to be a, a term which relates to people in ministry, in the churches. 
they actually could be probably men or women or in that sort of sense, but they're, they're, it seems to be, for example, in Acts 9.30 it says, and when the brethren learned of it, they brought him down from Caesarea and sent him on his way to Tarsus. Seems to be a term for the leaders of the church there. Acts 23, and so he invited them, gave them lodging, and the next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brethren from Joppa accompanied him, probably some of the leaders of the church. Acts 11, one, now the apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard. It's, it's not just, it's not equivalent of just saying, hi, brother. It seems, it seems to have more meaning than that. Romans 1.13, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you. I think, again, it's, it's certainly not male. The term, it seems to be a reference to, to leaders or, or leaders of the church or the whole church or whatever. Romans 7.1, or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law? In terms, it seems to be an official kind of terminology. And so I don't I don't want to particularly get bogged down on it, but just it's one of those things we, we kind of see so often we're reading in the Bible. In fact, I, I frequently, because if it's there, women are sitting there, they'll think, no, this is not for me. You can actually take the term out and it reads quite well. You just remove it, but it does seem to be addressed to people of influence. What is the intention of God? Verse 3, he gives them the greeting, which is just a typical Pauline greeting. You know, he's, he's saying, you know, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Kind of typical of all Paul's letters. It's almost like his characteristic, this is one of my letters, because so that's the way he greeted them. And then he says, you know, from who? From God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Who what? Who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony born at a proper time. And rescued us from, from all afflictions and so on, in order that he might deliver us. He gave himself for our sins in order that he might deliver us out of this present, present evil age. Now, if we can take, if I had a whiteboard here, I'd write these three simple phrases together. He gave himself for our sins as one phrase. Number two, in order that he might deliver us, as a second phrase. And then out of this, pre, this present evil age, as a third phrase. You see, in this letter, the gospel of Paul is under attack. Now, if we want to understand what Paul's gospel was, here it is. This is the heart of the message summarised for us. He gave himself for our sins. 1 Timothy 2 verse 6 says, he gave himself as a ransom for all. A testimony born at a proper time, 1 Timothy 2 6. So the beginning of the gospel is what Christ did for us. That's the beginning of the gospel. Second phrase, in order that he might deliver us. This was the purpose of what Christ did for us. It was not just kind of forgiveness, but deliverance. No, it's not just that the penalty of sin might be dealt with, but the power of sin over us might be broken. In Acts 7.10, Stephen's talking about Joseph and says, And God rescued him from all his afflictions and granted him favour and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and all his household. Very similar, he rescued him, delivered him. And surely the power of the gospel is not just one of the penalty of sin. It's delivering from the power of sin. And then the third phrase is out of this present evil age and which is to recognise that 
We don't have to be just delivered from the power of sin in our life, but we have to, in one sense, have light so come into us that we recognise the world in which we live for what it is. Um, Romans 8.38, Paul says, I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor the powers of these powers He's, he's understanding that there is this world, prevailing world view which we need to be rescued from. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. In Ephesians 5.16, Paul says, you're making the most of the time because the days are evil. This is, and then he, uh, he kind of finishes this off um, in, in verse 4, he says, according to the will of God, our Father, which is the will of God. So what's the will of God? <laughs> that we experience forgiveness of sins. What's the will of God? That we be delivered from the power of sin. What's the will of God? That, that we be set free from this present, present evil age. Now remember how I said that Romans and Galatians are related epistles. How, how do I get free from the present evil age and the way it, he says, well, Romans 12, I beseech you that you be transformed through the renewing of your mind. So there's this kind of a, a divine transaction in terms of forgiveness. There's a deliverance, which in Colossians, Paul will talk about he has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his son. There's a, there's a kind of a, a spiritual dimension where we move from one dominion to another, out of the dominion of darkness and into the dominion of his son. And then there's a whole conceptual thing that we begin to see our world and our, our life completely different. And, that, and for us to experience these three things is God's intention that it's, it's not just someone presenting us the four spiritual laws on the corner of the street and saying, do you believe this is true? Yes, will you say this prayer? Well, then you're saved. And then walk off and never see them again. As if, you know, and I, it's not that that is not necessarily invalid as a part of the gospel. But it's so partial, so incomplete that, that the, what the freedom that Paul believes, which we'll get to, you know, in this as we work through right through to Galatians five and six, the freedom is not just freedom from the penalty of sin. It's a freedom from the flesh. You know, it's a freedom from the dominion of the world in which we live. And here's Paul in this letter will talk about slavery. Not slavery in Egypt, but slavery to sin. And that this is the will of God for us. And, and he says to him, be glory forever and amen. But this is God's intention. It's the message which he preached. And what we'll find is that, is that unless we really understand that, that this is what God wants for us and we approach it by faith, we can end up being free from the penalty of sin because we respond to the gospel and ask Jesus to save us. We can stay enslaved to sin because we're no longer working by faith. We're trying to do it by the law. How about I pause for a second in case you want to reflect or... Powerful introduction, isn't it? It's kind of, <laughs> and it's worse, isn't it? Worse as personally reflecting in our own lives about this, saying, "Well, yes, I believe He died for my sin. Do I feel like He's delivered me from Egypt? 
You know, he's really, the, the power of sin in my life has been broken. And we know it's one thing to get out of Egypt, it's another thing to get into the promised land. <laughs> There's this journey, but, but to, to really believe we've been delivered so that we're free. And um, but also out of the present evil age to actually understand the world in which we live represents an environment alien to what we're wanting God wants us to be in terms of his will for our life. We okay? All right, let's read on. And uh, the, third, the third issue, so we've had the initiative of God, we've had the intention of God. The sad thing is then the rejection of God. And this is the stage reading from the NIV. He says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of, by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion. They're trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. It's the rejection of God. This is the rejection of God's way. The gospel has been presented, and then suddenly Paul moves on, and these people, they seem to dog him. I use that terminology because in Colossians he, he writes and he says, "Beware of the dogs." It's like it's like they were snapping at his heels. Everywhere he went, as soon as he moved, they'd move in and try and pervert what he'd said, and they kind of followed him wrong. and And it's like it's like no sooner had had he done one than along they are. You know who had called them? The answer is God through the ministry of Paul. He says, you, says, you're deserting the one who's called you. Paul himself understands himself to be God's instrument, but it's God who is speaking through him. To the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 13, he'll, he'll commend them when they believe what he's preaching to them to be not the word of man, but the word of God. And he says, if you, if you believe it to be God, not just man, it has power. In your life. And so it comes, he preaches the gospel, they receive the gospel, God begins to do their work. And then as soon as another group comes along and preaches something different, they desert not just him but the message. See, for Paul, the power of his ministry was not in himself, but that he was an instrument of God's grace. In 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, Paul says, And God has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. For power is perfected in weakness. I will gladly, therefore, I will boast rather about my weakness, that the power of Christ might dwell with me, that the, that the grace of God. They're, they're, they're turning. They are, he comes and presents the grace of God, the free gift of God, the working of God, which they don't deserve. He he presents this to them and along comes these people who says yes but you must still be circumcised you must still observe the law you must still this and they come and immediately lead them away from grace to law from God's power freely at work in them which is grace to their own strength which they'll seek to try and accomplish he says to another gospel, and heteros, there are two words for another in Greek, heteros, which is another of a different kind, and alos, which is another of the same kind. And he, he says to them, they, in terms of that they seek to present another gospel, And it's another of a different kind. But there is no other of a different kind. There's only one kind of gospel. That's what he's saying to them. He said, and then the, I mean, see, we kind of lose it a little bit in the English, but his choice of 
other is very specific. It's as if they're offering you a gospel of a different kind. And once you change it, it's not the gospel. That's, that's the issue. As in Paul's state, so today there are many who come and claim to preach the gospel to us. And yet there's only one gospel. The gospel contained in the scriptures, found in their Bible, confirmed by those who teach the scriptures. It's the one true and apostolic faith. It's a gospel which presents Christ as the one who died for our sins to deliver us from this evil age. It's not a gospel whereby Christ died for us that we might continue to live the same way we live. It's not a gospel where you just get forgiveness and live, go on living your life. You know, what's the gospel? He died for us to deliver us and to deliver us from the evil age. It's a gospel of a power which transforms our life. That's the nature of it. It's not a gospel which says come forward in some big meeting and the next day just continue to live the same way. In fact, that kind of approach to the gospel is denying the power of the gospel. He, he speaks of these people as as those who trouble us. He says, though some are troubling you and wishing to pervert the gospel, they bother us. They wish to change the gospel. You know, and I have to ask you the question, why should today be any different? Why should we not assume that in our own time there'll be those who will come, seek to bother us, disturb us, by offering us a different gospel. And someone can ask, you know, what, what will they be? They'll be people who are in bondage to human traditions who want us to conform to their traditions rather than to the gospel. Now, if that's what happened, we, we can begin to ask the question, what then are the substitutes? What do they look like? What, what, what does the distorted gospel look like which is presented to us the gospel which will not have the power to see us experience deliverance? And so on. First, in, in verse 8, Paul says, Even if, if we are an angel from heaven, should preach a gospel, so... They, the message may come by way of angelic manifestation or revelation. Now, even if it's that way, and if it's what's preached is other than what was preached to you, let him be eternally condemned. As we've already said, so we say again to you, if anyone is preaching to you to another gospel, then that which is accepted, let him be Condemned. People can fall from grace and Satan can appear like an angel of light. 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen, Paul says, Such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen, Preaching another gospel different from that which we preach to you. I... Uh, <coughs> Before, before I present to you a uh, kind of a, a view of some of the, the most common substitutes, it would be good for us to sort of reflect on them. I remember when I was in seminary, this is back in, um, so it was either 1978 or 79, this book came out claiming to be a series of angelic revelations about aspects of the gospel which had not been put in the scriptures. And this pastor claimed to have had a series of these visions from God. And uh, so he managed to get a publisher. I don't know whether he self-published them or get some publisher. And this book was just circulating like, you know, like fire throughout the church and everyone 
was reading, and there was a, there were particular aspects to it. It was a one of the aspects was household salvation. You know, if you get saved, your whole household is saved, and, which is very appealing. You know, if you're the only Christian in your family, to think you're enough if you get saved. And there were a series of these, and and of course the book became controversial, and it was reviewed and so on. But what wasn't made public was the fact that the the guy who'd had these visions himself was concerned by some of the stuff which was in them. And so he wrote the visions down and submitted his manuscript of the visions to to three well-known theologians to to read them and examine them to make sure that there was nothing in these visions which was contrary to the teaching of Scripture. Well, I didn't take the readers, and one of my professors was one of the people who read it, taking very long to realise that this was clearly not from God, that there was this vision which was uh, clearly stating something different to Scripture and whatever. So anyway, and so he critiqued this thing, sent it back to the guy. And and, uh, and what was actually printed was the revision, <laughs> not the vision. Um, in other words, it, it wasn't what he claimed to have seen it was what he's claimed to have seen as revised by what he thought was right. But you think about it, it totally discredits the whole thing because if it's wrong, it's wrong. Now, that's what 20, 22 years ago and so on. And my observation is like every few years, it's like someone goes to heaven and comes, you know, has a near death experience, comes back and has some insight as to what heaven's like or what hell's like or whatever it might be, and you kind of get these things, and these tapes circulate and so on. And we need to be careful when we listen to this, to go back to the scriptures, is this the gospel presented in? Now, <clears throat> with this, I want you to turn to Colossians 2. Now, some of you have heard me go through this passage before, and I, I can tell you, unembarrassedly, I don't care whether some of you hear me preach this 10 times. Because this in Colossians 2 is Paul's expansion of the spiritual substitutes, the counterfeits. We need to know them. We need to be aware of them. And we need to wear others of them because this is the passage in Colossians 2 where Paul will set out in his experience the four expressions of another gospel. And uh, so we can think about it. All right, so if we pick it up at Colossians 2, pick it up at verse 8. Well, we'll pick it up at verse 6. He says, So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. In other words, Paul says now, stay with what you are taught. Counterfeit number one, verse eight. See to it that no one takes you captive by, through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. So the first is philosophy. Now, what is philosophy? Philosophy is fundamental, is truth, which is the result of the application of logic to human observation. I see, I apply my human rational thinking and logic, and from that I get, I come to an opinion of the way things are, the way God is, uh, the way the world is, the way nature is, and so on. It's it's philosophy. Philosophy is by no means all error. It's the reality is, however. It is merely the application of human reason. It's not rooted in revelation. There is an element of revelation to it, 
inasmuch as creation itself is a gift to us from God, and Romans 1 would say we can see in creation things about God, and therefore some of the great philosophers saw in, saw in the created order of things a revelation of what God's like, and, and the early people like Plato and so on are actually called theologians, and they speak of God and they have faith in God and so on. But when you start from that basic place of that and then apply logic and reason, you begin to develop systems of understanding which are philosophical rather than revelation from God. And it can take you a long way away from God. And the Greeks were uh, known for it. And Paul recognises already there's a danger that he's, what he's doing, it's, it's as if he's preaching the gospel and people who are familiar with Greek philosophy and the teachings of the philosophers Aristotle and Plato and the, their different philosophical schools were just like filtering what he was saying through philosophy and redefining the nature of the Christian faith. What does it do? Well, it, at a very foundational level, fundamental philosophical level, it can lead to you to saying, well, there's evil in the world. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ couldn't have made an evil world. Therefore, the God of the Old Testament, the creator God, can't be the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You can end up with two gods philosophically, and that's what they did, was the earliest of the heresies. Or it can end up with a view of, well, the physical world is evil, the world of ideas, the spiritual things, is perfect and ideal. I, I therefore should see my own body as evil. You know, concepts of asceticism and the way in which you live and or else you live a life of license. It doesn't matter what I do with my body, provided I think the whole thing. It can completely and utterly distort your view of God, your view of the world, view of yourself. The great writers of the church. And I have yet to find one who wasn't a philosopher before he was a Christian. Now, if that doesn't scare the daylights out of you, it does out of me. But if they're grounding, and I'm, you're talking, I'm talking about Justin Martyr, I'm talking about Clement of Alexandria, you know, I'm talking about Jerome, I'm talking about you know, these great writers. It's almost like, it's, there's no great surprise about it because none of them are Jews. And the, the, the classic education was in Greek philosophy. If you went to university, you went to study rhetoric and philosophy and so on. And if they were the educated and they became the teachers of the church, the nature of the education they would have undertaken was philosophical. And if that doesn't sound as some warning as to why the early church may have ended up with some very bizarre views of things like human sexuality and celibacy, and the whole nature of the Christian life. The very thing that Paul is warning about here. And you might say, well, we're Aussies. <laughs> <laughs> we don't go down to the cafe and have a cappuccino and discuss Aristotle. In the same way the Europeans do. I think there is, there is a difference in a sense. But it's a danger. It's, uh, to me... I see it more as an expression of people who want to argue about the meanings of words and reduce Christianity to a theology. It would be kind of a dry Christianity, which is kind of a discussions about abstract truth rather than Christ would be the way we would probably encounter it today. You know, at its best, evangelicalism is a 
passionate love for Christ and living for Christ and living in Christ and presenting Christ and persuading people about Christ. At its worst, it's a, a, it's a bigoted commitment to an understanding of how you interpret, rightly interpret Scripture. Where they're more concerned whether you interpret Scripture correctly as to whether you really love Christ. And it's, it gets into this sort of issue. It, it be, it's like it takes us away. That's number one. Number two, and you may well want to uh, discuss some of these. Number two, if we skip down to verse 16, Paul says, Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink with regards to religious festivals, new moon celebrations, or Sabbath days. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. Notice these things were there to forecast what was to come, which is to Christ. The reality, however, is found in Christ. This is... This is uh, Legalism and a sense of probably a combination of legalism and ritualism, whereby the observers, the observance of religious patterns and behaviors, whether it's in terms of what you do and don't eat, what you do and don't drink, whether you go to church every Friday night or Sunday morning or for the high festivals for saints' days or all of this. And Paul actually, it's really important to see that Paul doesn't denigrate them. He doesn't actually say that one shouldn't have observed these festivals. But in the past, these were, these were there to lead us to Christ. They had their place in the history of the Jews. You know, they were... Are important, but only important as they pointed forward to Christ. And um, again, it's moving to today. Um, we would see this in in um, people who believe you should go to church in a black suit and a white shirt, black tie. People who should who say you shouldn't dance or chew or go with girls that do, you know, in the sense of uh, <laughs> um, that that the, the important things are what you do and don't do, or or it becomes, and I think there are different religious traditions involved in this. You know, Catholicism in terms of going to the mass is the most important thing. Uh, for some, it's doing religious pilgrimages, these kinds of issues. Um, you can see that the form has replaced the reality. The form which is to bring you to Christ becomes the important thing. I, you know, I don't have a problem if a person wants to go to a church with with liturgy and organ music and candles or any of that thing, provided these things bring them to Christ. If through this they find a a loving, enriching relationship with Christ, which they then live out during the week, if if that's what turns them on, if that's what will help them, if it's a means to Christ, it's a wonderful thing. We shouldn't attack it. Just because instead of bells and smells, we like bells and yells, you know. <laughs> we shouldn't. We shouldn't confuse. The, the, for some person, icons and these sorts of things, you know, objects are to aid in the worship of Christ, Christ and the richness of the Eastern traditions of the church, we ought not to, to mock them in any kind of way. What we probably need to do is examine within our own traditions, are there similar things? Where we think, well, we're really religious if we go to the mid, <laughs> midweek Bible study and the prayer meeting and we go to every single meeting the church ever has on and we feel like we're going all to these meetings and this becomes a, a ritual pattern week after week after week and we have to say, is it? 
am I, is Christ the focus of my life or are these meetings the focus of my life? That's the, that's the second one. So it's, philosophy is the first, legalism is the second. Straight on, verse 18, Paul says, Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen, and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. He's lost his connection from the head from whom the whole body subordinated and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. See, in the previous case, the, the, he describes the legalism and formalism or ritualism as a shadow. And the shadow is always cast backwards. You know, if the sun's in front of you, the shadow's behind you. You know, in this sort of sense, and he's saying, you know, these things were a shadow from Christ. They, you know, Christ was there in the reality. Is, let's not talk to the shadow. Let's not have a relationship with the shadow. Let's have a relationship with the real thing. In this case, there's all these trappings of a kind of a spirituality, but it's set that they separate you from the head who's Christ, from whom real godly growth comes. And I, I, you can call this super-spiritualism, if you like, okay, super-spirituality, ecstasy, <coughs> mysticism, and these kinds of issues. And again, I have to say we encounter it. I encounter it. I encounter people who've who, are, you know, who want to talk to me about the latest dream of vision they've had on angel manifestations. Hey, you, will you come along? You read this book? Will you listen to this tape? Hey, oh, it's wonderful. You know, to all this stuff. This band's been to heaven and back and all this kind of stuff. And I listen to it and I'm looking for Christ because I know it's out of their relationship with Christ. A growth will come upon them. It's like they're looking for the spectacular, looking for the, you know, for the supernatural, looking for the, a place which is, takes them outside of themselves as if this is the key to spirituality. And Paul says it, it separates you from the head. And what am I saying? Because in all of this, revel, you know, philosophy you know, it can look at the revelation of creation and seeing it God. Wonderful. Yeah, traditions, religious observances can be a means by which we encounter Christ. Um, if you have an angelic visitation and uh, every now and again, even though it's always someone else who has it, <laughs> and you're never there at the time, <laughs> but if you have one, you know, you know, if it's really an angel from God, it'll be like Mary, which says, do whatever he tells you. Remember when the, the, the wedding? Mary says, whatever he says for you to do, do it. She points to Christ. She's not drawing attention to herself. And you can sort of test the angels because the angels draw attention to themselves. They draw, attentions. If they draw attention away from Christ. They don't get caught in it. I remember the first time I um, went to Singapore and uh, people want to thrust this literature, these books on me written by a Malaysian Bible teacher. And he had all these revelations and they said, oh, yeah, it's wonderful. Very, very chim. <laughs> and, you know, very deep and, you know, and this kind of stuff. And, and I read this stuff and I thought, man, I, I, I thought, this guy, I would say it's spectacular stuff, but it separates you from Christ. And I said, not only would this teaching separate them from Christ and take them into the thrill of experience, and I said, but this guy himself is separated from Christ. Now, I, you know, I didn't know him, I never met him, I never sat under his ministry, I just read, I thought, this is dangerous stuff. You know, and it just takes time. And years later, I found out that he'd kind of had to get out of the country because of 
morality issues and financial issues and he came, you know, he went overseas and the same thing was replicated there and so on. But it's the sign. It's the danger. And then lastly, number four, down in verse 20, he says, since you've died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, and that's to a philosophical understanding, why do you still, be- as, if, as if they still belong to it, do you submit to its rules, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which is kind of the legalism. These are all destined to perish with use because they are based on human commands and teaching. And this is it. See, such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom. It's self-imposed worship, their false humility, their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. This is probably best to summarise as self-denial. If you read any church history, say you read the story of uh, Martin Luther, a monk and the traditions of the Catholic Church where you know, as part of their spiritual disciplines, they'd have these whips of leather with lead and they'd go in and, and were so trying to deal you know, with their sin, with their demons, They'd flog themselves, you know, literally rip their backs open with these whips to inflict pain, believing that this was the key to driving out demons. You know, to, to punish yourself, you punish your body, and so on. And Paul knows, you know, and Paul will ultimately, as we, we get back to Galatians, he'll, he'll say, you know, I, you know, I was the most zealous of all of my own contemporary. He must have been down this path of self-denial and all of this and realised in the end it doesn't deal. It doesn't deal with the inside. It just deals with the physical body. And do we see it today? We do, don't we? We may see it. We, it's still present in the parts of Catholicism in some of the religious orders, but outside of Catholicism we can see it in other traditions. You can find it in certain kinds of fundamentalism be it Protestant or be it Pentecostal and so on. You can, and you get this strange irony of they'll fast for long periods of time or they'll pray for long periods of time and then, then they'll go home and get drunk. And uh, years ago I had one of my students of, of uh, a moment when I was teaching Bible college and for a part-time job, um, she was working as a cook in a religious order. You know, and they'd taken the vows of pro- poverty and chastity and obedience, so they kind of locked every part of their life up. But the food they ate and the alcohol which was consumed, and this is, it was like the only indulgence which was left to them. <laughs> <laughs> Indulgence in a funny use of the word. <laughs> but, but it was just, was like, I've denied myself this, therefore I will compensate by... Now, talk us through this because to take us away from Galatians to say, these are the kind of substitutes. Paul, Paul's there and they're, they're alive today. Self-denial. Now, if we go back to Galatians, because I just want to, just want, I wanted to wrap it up with the, the last verse, that, is verses 8 and 9. Because if they're the dangers that we've looked at, <clears throat> Paul then says, he says, If we are an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one which we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned, literally literally let him be anathematized. As we've already said, but now we say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you've accepted, let them be condemned. So Paul says, 
the gospel, which we, we looked at earlier, presented to you. That's it. Now, the question he wants to finish with at this point, the observation is, what is Paul's motivation? You know, why, is, why is he so strong? And he says, am I trying to win the approval of men or of God? Because if, I, if this is about God's freedom, if this is about entering into what God has for me, I have to resolve the question of whose servant am I? Am I going to do it my way or God's way? Which is why in my notes I've said doing it God's way. If I'm going to live a life which is really all that God's got for me and overcoming, I've got to do it God's way. So he says... How am I trying to amaze men? If I were trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. And so we kind of start this new study, which says, okay, am I going to do it my way or God's way? Am I a servant of men or a servant of Christ? I'm going to accept the fact that in this journey, there are going to be counterfeits presented to me things which have the appearance of wisdom, which seem wise, which seem spiritual, which seem religious, which seem holy, self-denial, they're all going to be out there. And Paul will say, but they're not the way godly growth comes. They're not the way freedom comes. They're not the way we're going to overcome. To overcome, I've got to do it God's way. So what we might do is I might just pray and then you might like to ask a question with you a couple of minutes. We might just uh, ask some questions. So let's just let's pray. Lord, I'm just aware that Paul longs that we might remain free in the freedom for which Christ died for us. We might know it, live in it and enjoy it, and be changed by it. Lord, we believe that Christ died for us. He died that he might deliver us and that he might also deliver us indeed, from this present evil age. Lord, I pray that we might be able to walk in this freedom, experience it, as we, as we in faith keep our eyes on him. So help us, Lord, to walk this journey together, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right, any, uh, we've just got just a couple of minutes, a few minutes, maybe you'd like to... Interact, we even make some comments because the tape can go off. And Tony, do you? The following message was given by Dr. Ian Jagelman during his 40 years of ministry as a church leader in Australia. It's our sincere desire that this timeless message will equip you as a leader and a servant in your family, business, and community. More resources like this one can be found at jagelman.org. Enjoy the following message.